You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. If you guys haven't checked out the new Navigator series from Lacrosse, I strongly suggest you do that. Two really good boots within that Navigator series, the Windrose and the Atlas. If you want to find out more information about all of the boots that Lacrosse offers, visit their website, lacrossefootwear.com. You won't regret it. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. All right, so in today's podcast, I have some pretty exciting news, at least for me. I ended up buying a new bow, and, you know, I was kind of on the fence for a while about whether or not I would actually want one if I really needed one. I mean, the answer to that is no, I don't need one for sure, but I went to ATA this year kind of with the, you know, thought process, like I mentioned in one of my earlier podcasts, I wanted to try a few bows out and just kind of see what I thought. After a few weeks and kind of, you know, mulling over the decision, ended up buying one. I will talk about that just in a little bit and some of the bigger decision factors, things that I like and don't like. I want to, before we start this podcast and the greater bow discussion, just answer some Q and A's. You know, I get a lot of messages that come through via Facebook messenger or Instagram messenger. And some of the questions are pretty good. Some of the questions I get quite often. So what I wanted to try in this podcast and, you know, give me some feedback for sure, if you like, or don't like this idea, but I'll take the first few minutes of the podcast and just go through some of these common questions that I get. I'll give you the answers to them and then we'll go into the meat of the podcast. So there was a guy who asked on YouTube, will the saddles ever be available in major retailers? So could you ever go to Cabela's or something like that and ever be able to buy a saddle? Maybe would be the answer to that question. It's not totally out of the realm of possibility, I would say. You know, back when saddles first became a thing, they didn't do very well in big retail stores. And part of that was simply due to the fact, and, you know, Bobby had talked about this in one of our earlier podcasts about saddle hunting. Part of the reason for that was just that there wasn't a very good training system. A lot of the retailers that would get these saddles didn't really know how to sell them or how to really train the users or answer questions that people had about them. So they would oftentimes just end up sitting on the shelf and not selling. But times have definitely changed. There's a lot more information about saddles, about saddle hunting, how to use them, common questions and answers, all that good stuff. There's plenty of videos and just all sorts of content. As saddles become more popular and they you know, probably will create through TMA some sort of spec that particularly relates to saddles, I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing them being sold in bigger box stores. I don't know what the grand timeline and all that kind of stuff looks like, but I definitely think it could be headed in that direction. We'll see. Next question. What is my current arrow weight for white-tailed deer? You know, for me, it's, it's always changing, to be honest. Two years ago, I shot all over 600 grain arrows and did all right. Prior to that, historically, I've shot a lot of deer with like low to mid 400 grain arrows, like 440 in that range, uh, 420. I've done, you know, shot quite a few deer in my younger years with lighter arrows like that, lighter, you know, relatively speaking. Um, there's a lot of guys obviously that shoot under 400 grains, but for me, it's always kind of been a light arrow for me is like low 400s. The biggest thing that I noticed was that with the heavier arrows, I was blowing through deer further than I was before, you know, with a 70 pound draw weight and 29 and a half inch draw, I generally don't have too much of an issue on the momentum and kinetic energy side of things. So what I noticed was that I would now be sticking my arrow, you know, 12, 
15 inches into the dirt. Whereas a lot of times in the past with the lighter arrows, I would be getting, you know, pass throughs that would maybe just kind of dribble out the backside of the deer and not really even be stuck in the ground, but just kind of be laying there. And in either case, it was obviously equally as effective, but there's definitely a little bit more, I guess, safety under the bell curve, if you would, with a heavier arrow. So ultimately, you know, it comes down to what, what kind of weight you can handle and what kind of speed you're comfortable with shooting. Obviously there's pros and cons and trade-offs on both sides of the spectrum. Most likely for this coming year, I'll be in the, you know, low 500 grain range again, it's probably 525, 530, maybe somewhere in there. How are the Bishop and day six arrows? So the Bishop arrows are really well put together. They're, they're a lighter GPI arrow shaft, but they have with their system, just a whole bunch of reinforcements in terms of both internal and external footing. There's a lot of options in terms of how you can tweak the system to get different, you know, variable spines and all that kind of, kind of stuff. They are a little bit smaller diameter. So wind drift is going to be better, you know, marginally speaking than a lot of sta other standard diameter arrow shafts. The biggest downside to the Bishop arrows is just that they're extremely expensive. Uh, you know, like if you take other high end arrows, they're probably three X what you would normally consider to be high priced. So definitely on the higher side, higher price side of things, kind of a, you know, luxury item, so to speak with the day six, a little bit uh, more reasonably priced on those for sure. The day six is like opposite end of the spectrum. You know, the Bishop is kind of set up to be really light GPI, but also very uh, structurally reinforced. Whereas the day six is a very high GPI. So you're going to get lower FOC with the day six but also a much thicker wall. So that's adding to the durability. So it doesn't need to be as reinforced as the Bishop are. Also the Bishop are standard diameter. Like I mentioned, the day six are micro diameter. So they're micro diameter on the inside, but on the exterior, because they're so thick, they're probably closer to like a five millimeter, you know, typical arrow with the testing that I had done with the day six arrows, they, for me, spun really great. The spine consistency on the test, kit that I got was okay. It wasn't the best I've ever seen, but it also was definitely not the worst by any means. I would still consider that a pretty good shaft. There's a lot of tolerance stack up when you get that heavy of a, a carbon total wall. So I don't think that you'd have really too many issues in, in terms of uh, having spine consistency issues with those shafts. You do have the ability with those heavier walled, higher GPI shafts to get a stiffer spine for a given arrow weight. So let's say you take a light GPI arrow and a heavy GPI arrow, both of those set up for say 500 grains with the lighter GPI arrow, you're going to end up having to add more weight to the front to get your 500 grains. It's going to give you a higher FOC, but it also weakens your dynamic spine. So you got to be careful with that because you don't want to end up in a situation where you finally got your total arrow weight that you're looking for. You got a nice FOC, but you can't shoot it as accurately because you're, you're too front heavy. Um, and not from just a, an FOC standpoint, but literally just you're dynamically too weak. You know, the arrow is flexing too much. And if that arrow is not stiff enough, then, then it makes it harder for that arrow to recover out of the bow and you end up with a less accurate overall system. Whereas with the higher GPI arrow, same arrow weight, you're going to end up with obviously less weight in the front because you don't need as much weight because more of that weight is in the shaft. And in that kind of a scenario, you're you know, string pushing on the backside of the arrow shaft, isn't going to flex it as much as it would with the more front heavy system in that same type of scenario. So you're going to end up with a dynamically stiffer arrow for the same arrow weight. It's not that one is better than the other. They both kind of have pros and cons. The 
you know, thicker walled, lower FOC setup is generally going to act differently in high winds and, you know, long range than the high FOC setup would. For a lot of guys shooting sub 30 yards, you're going to be really hard pressed to find a difference. It really comes down to just picking a, a total setup that number one is durable. Number two, which I would say both of those particular systems are very durable and then getting something that's just really spined well for your setup and not forcing yourself to shoot something too weak because you're aiming for a certain percentage of FOC or something like that. Next question, guys looking to try and get 30 feet up into the tree for his hunting setup wants to know how many sticks I would plan on packing to get to that kind of a height. And if I would go with two step sticks or three step sticks. So for me, I very rarely hunt 30 feet, but if I were, honestly, I, that's probably when I would start to lean more towards like a one stick style of system, because otherwise typically with my normal climbing stick setup with two step sticks and an aider on each stick, I would probably need to bring four to five sticks in that scenario to get up to 30 feet at platform height. So typically for me, by the time I'm carrying, you know, five sticks, it really balances the trade off more to, I'd rather just bring a, a more efficient climbing system in terms of the, um, the total weight that I'm carrying and the amount of height that I can get per that weight. If you would go with a three-step stick, then of course you can get higher per stick, especially if you still add that single aider on, but then the trade-off of course is that that system is not going to be as packable. So for me, I'm usually around 20 feet or lower. Just, just typically how it ends up unless it's rifle season, unless it's, you know, during the rut and I'm in a, a spot where I just want to get high up because that's the only place I can find cover. That's when I would go to one of those either, you know, multi stick systems, four sticks or something like that, or a one stick uh, climbing method to be able to get that extra height. All right. Next guy wants to know layers of carpet behind target skins on my garage target. So basically I have a DIY target that I built in my garage and on the front and back faces of that target, I use the third hand archery skins. And the guy was curious if I had ever tried putting layers of carpet as opposed to just all of the layers of like blankets and clothing that I stuff inside the target between those two skins. Um, I haven't tried the carpet. The one thing I would be afraid of with the carpet is that the way that those fibers are woven together, it might, it seems to me that it might get caught more easily on some of the kind of you know, rougher edges on the inserts. You know, a lot of my aero systems have footers or they have, you know, collars or something along those lines. So even with the skins as is, they don't pull super cleanly out of that skin. So I would imagine with a carpet as a layer, it might get worse, but again, I haven't tried it. Next question. Will I continue to use the easy V site in future seasons? Uh, I would say yes. I will probably also buy a multi-pen slider. I'm a multi-pen guy for hunting for sure, regardless of what type of site it is. So for me, I look at it and say easy V and a pen site are two slightly different tools oftentimes used for the same purpose, but then they each have kind of their own sets of things where they really excel individually right? The easy V is going to be a site that's going to give you the opportunity to, to use it for certain range finding applications. Whereas the pin site, the advantage of that is that it's going to be a little bit less cluttered of an overall, um, site window picture. And you're going to be typically a little bit more precise when you aim at particular spots. So if you're shooting at, you know, a target at the range at 60 yards or whatever, I generally find that with a pin site, I have better groups when I'm shooting at that spot. But when I'm shooting at say something like a 3d target, then the groups for me end up being a little bit more similarly sized. 
there's situations where I can make a shot with the easy V based on how I range with it that I wouldn't even attempt because my range finding otherwise is so garbage with a pin sight. But if I knew I was going to use a range finder, the combo of a range finder and a pin sight is generally going to be a little bit more spot on. So the easy V really excels and shines for me when you think you're going to be in a scenario where you potentially might not have time to range. Would I recommend the Sony X3000 as a head cam in the future? Uh, so I touched on this actually a little bit with the podcast I just did with Mark Kenyon on his Wired to Hunt podcast. The Sony X3000 is now several years old, so you can get some decent pricing on it. It's 4K. It does a pretty good job, but there are better options out there now. So menu systems, updates, apps, all that kind of stuff is a little bit better with, say, something like the GoPro Hero 7 or 8. So I would definitely recommend going uh, with something like that. There's also an Insta360 1R, which has the option to be used as either a 4K action camera, a 360 camera, or a one-inch sensor, super high-resolution action camera, depending on how you have it rigged up. It's a little bit more expensive if you buy all three of those different modules to hook up to it. But the point is, there's a lot better options now than that Sony that still give you the same resolution, but give you some other stuff that the Sony really can't. How do I remove arrow inserts from arrows after they've been epoxied in place? So of course, if the arrow inserts were installed with a hot melt, you can install a field point, heat up that field point until the heat transfer starts to melt that glue inside the shaft, and then you can pull the shaft off. But if they were installed with an epoxy, heating that up isn't going to do anything for you. So really the only shot that you have if something's epoxied in is the drill bit method where you basically take the knock out of the back of the arrow. You take a drill bit that's just small enough to fit inside the arrow shaft and you slide it in and you got to be safe when you do this. You whip the shaft that, and that whipping action drives that drill bit right into the back of the insert. And when I say be safe, like do it in an area where there's nothing to break, where there's nothing that that drill bit could bounce back at you, wear eye protection, you know, wear long sleeves, long pants, like try and make this as safe as possible because that drill bit, once it finally does pop that insert out, will tend to go flying and it goes flying fast enough that you're not going to be able to react. So be safe when you do that. But that's really the only way that I know of to get those inserts out if they're epoxied in. The other thing I would say is that if you can try and rig up some kind of bag on the front side of the arrow, like a little Ziploc bag, maybe doubled up that's, you know, taped or rubber banded to the arrow shaft, just to try and catch or slow down that drill bit as it does pop that insert out. And sometimes you really got to go after it for, you know, quite a while, a few minutes to get that thing to finally break. Next question. Uh, the Phantom from Tethered versus Saddle brand XYZ model, whatever. I'll uh, just kind of make it a generic versus here. So there was a point in time when I had tried just about every saddle on the market. There's a few new ones now that I have not had the chance to try. So I can't speak uh, specifically to the Phantom against all other saddles out there. What I will say is that the Phantom for me is definitely the favorite of the one that I have of all the ones that I have tried. And I would have no issues recommending that saddle uh, to anybody else. They've made some uh, improvements on comfort over the Mantis and I have no issues sitting in that thing all day, especially when you add the, the back band and any kind of knee protection you might typically wear. And they still do it in a very, you know, minimalist and lightweight package. So definitely has my, you know, vote of approval. Another guy asks, how do I cut Amsteel? So Amsteel is a very tough, durable fiber. 
I typically use scissors. It does take a little bit of effort to cut them with scissors, but again, I just use the cheap scissors and once they wear out, I end up just buying new pairs. I'm sure there's better options out there, but I haven't really found that they're needed. Another guy had a questions on vein configurations and fobs and you know, which is better, what's the best. Ultimately the best is something that you really have to find by playing around with it yourself. And in my honest opinion, you have to be a really high level archer to really be able to pick and choose exactly what's best just because they're all so close, right? If you're shooting, you know, a pie plate group at 40 yards, you're probably not going to be able to tell much of a difference between three fletch, four fletch, different vein sizes, unless you're really under veined. It's one of those things you can play around with. And if you're a really good shot, it definitely helps you to play around with different vein configurations. But I would say if you don't think you're maybe a top level archer or you are somebody who could, who could definitely use a little bit more on the forgiveness side of things, it never hurts to kind of over vein. Uh, if you use higher helical, more fletchings, it's going to slow your arrow down faster, but it's also going to give you a little bit more forgiveness when you don't make a perfect shot at closer ranges. All right. Next question is, uh, talking about the fleet garments that I had worn last year hunting asked if they were windproof. So there's not like a specific membrane within the, the garments within that soft shell that is like a gore infinium or something like that. The fabric itself is kind of tested and rated at CFM level, basically. So if you go on the website, it'll say, you know, rated at less than one CFM. So there's a standardized test, I guess, for how they rate windproofness. And if you can imagine, it's kind of like a, a pressurized test where they try and force air through a piece of fabric. And if a large volume of air in cubic feet per minute, CFM, is able to pass through that garment, then it's got a lower windproof rating. So with like a cotton t-shirt, it's going to have a really high value on that CFM test. Whereas something that's totally windproof is going to have hardly any air at all being able to pass through uh, with that pressurized air test. So the fleet is rated about as low as you can. Uh, by definition, less than one is typically called windproof. What I can say is that I haven't had it become an issue at all when I've been out on stand. One of the tests that I would like to do, and it'd be great if I had a snowmobile right now, is I could put a cotton t-shirt on, put the, the jacket on, and just ride it in the snowmobile out here in the cold weather. And that'd be able to tell you really fast at, you know, 30, 40, 50, when that, if it, you know, starts to break down, when that would happen. And when you start to feel that wind coming through. But for me, like I said, it just, it hasn't been a major concern for me. Next question is, how far from the parking lot do I hunt? Man, it all, it all depends. Uh, there were some hunts during late season this year where I was only like 150, 200 yards from the truck and saw a deer. And there's been hunts earlier this even season where Missouri, I was what, three miles from the parking lot. There's a couple times in Minnesota, I got into some really good sign two and a half miles from the truck. But like I said, it all depends. I just want to try and be someplace where there's it's overlooked and someplace where the deer sign is fresh. And that could be yeah, that could be anywhere, you know, it's just a matter of scouting and finding that sign, but I don't try to lock myself into getting a certain distance away from the vehicle. Another guy asked about matching the color. If you're doing DIY lighted knocks, if you should match the color or just go with clear. And he ended up answering his own question. I didn't have a chance to get back to him on this, but he ended up giving the feedback that when he made DIY lighted knocks, if he matched the color of the knock to the color of the light, it made it significantly brighter than if he just used a clear knock. So if you're using like a red light, a red 
clear polycarbonate knock almost amplifies the, the visual brightness of that knock. So definitely appreciate him going through and actually doing that test. Another guy asked how I drag a deer out of the woods. It depends if it is marshy habitat, sleds work really well. If it's hill country, if you're allowed to quartering and packing the animal out works really well. It's so hard to drag in very steep hills. If you have any kind of logging roads or access or maintenance roads, then a wheeled cart works the best. So try and base it off of, you know, the type of habitat terrain that you're hunting. And then we'll finish it with another phantom question. When is the phantom going to be released? I don't have an exact date. I don't think Tether has released an exact date yet. I know from ATA, the plan has been to put that up for sale on, website, on the website in late February. And to the best of my knowledge, that's still accurate. The best thing that you could probably do if you're waiting for it and you want to make sure you get one before they hopefully sell out, if they do sell out, hopefully they have enough inventory to cover everybody and keep it going. But um, what I would do is go onto their website, sign up for their email newsletter, and I'm sure they'll probably be sending out some kind of communications before that actually goes live. All right, so now let's jump into what I really wanted to talk about today, which is my new bow. So at the ATA show, I tried a handful of different short bows. I tried the Matthews VXR in both the 31 and the 28 inch models. I tried the Bear Archery uh, with the Echo Cam. I tried the Mamba 28 from APA Archery. I tried all the Gearhead bows. I tried the, an Elite bow, the Cure, and that one wasn't really short, but I wanted to tr just shoot, try shooting it anyway. There was a few other ones that I wanted to shoot, but wasn't able to get a chance to just didn't really have a lot of time for everything, but I at least had the opportunity to shoot all the main bows that I was really kind of curious about going into it. And so after I got back home from ATA, there was three that I personally, you know, liked the most, maybe one of them being the APA, one of them being the Matthews, one of them being the gearhead, but all for different reasons. So the APA, the thing I liked about that is that really that bow is, is like foolproof for in terms of what you can do in the field. You don't need a bow press to do pretty much anything except for swap the limbs, which how often are you going to do that? If you go out on a backcountry elk hunt, you're 10 miles away from the truck, you can carry an extra pair of strings and cables. And if anything happens, you can in the field, you know, swap a set of strings and cables out. You can rotate your peep sight without having to press it. You know, there's a whole lot of really nice user-friendly hunting specific features, I think, with that bow. That was probably the thing I liked about it the most. The draw cycle was okay, not bad. It's a speed bow, so it's not going to be the smoothest. It didn't have maybe the greatest wall, uh, valley and back wall compared to some of the other ones, but it wasn't bad. I was expecting worse. Uh, a lot of the earlier models didn't come standard with the limb stops, and so you get a really mushy back wall feeling. They did have a bow there set up with just kind of the cable stops. And I definitely wasn't a fan of that, but then I tried the Mamba that had the limb stops and that was a significant improvement. So that bow is also very narrow. So I felt like I was able to manipulate and move it maybe a little bit easier at full draw than some of the other bows. It's kind of hard to tell, to be totally honest, when you're shooting at a target that's like 15 feet away and you don't have any sight to really reference it off of, it makes all of the bows feel pretty stable and smooth, especially when they're all typically set at like 60 pounds. They're, they all feel buttery smooth to draw at 60 pounds. 
and you know you don't have a it's not like you're trying to hold a pin on something 60 yards away so you really don't get a great feel for how steady it's holding without stabilizers that's the other thing they don't have stabilizers so not fully rigged up with maybe how you would have them rigged up you just kind of try and you know feel what you can a lot of it is just kind of evaluating the draw cycle for me but you know overall i did like that apa uh, and had i had i not gotten the bow that i ended up buying you know that was definitely like i said it was on my short list uh, the matthews also was another one that i felt especially compared to the apa i felt like once i got to full draw that matthews vxr sat really well from what i could feel again it's tough to tell when you're shooting in that kind of a situation at a close target they did have one also set up at 70 pounds so i was able to get the feel of what it was like at 70 pounds with that vxr the way that the Matthews are balanced are kind of top heavy without any stabilizers on it. That threw me off a little bit at first because normally when I would, when I would carry the bow, I would kind of grab the grip in such a way. And when I would do that with that Matthews, it just wanted a tip. And so it felt like it was going to be really awkward to carry into the woods, how I typically carry my bows by the handle. And I felt like I wanted to grab the bow, like above the rest, almost closer to where the sight would be in order for it to balance right as I was walking but it seemed like, you know, after I talked to some other guys that I know that have shot Matthews, they're like, oh, yeah, you just kind of balance the, the stabilizer against your forearm, and it makes it pretty easy to carry like that. And then I ended up also picking up one that they had set up with stabilizers on the lower end of the riser, and it balanced really well. So I definitely think that that was a pretty decent option. The draw cycle I didn't feel was quite the easiest, but again, it's a 344 IBO rated bow, which is no slouch. So... I would say it wasn't uh, any significantly different than what you maybe would have expected for a bow like that. So again, I feel like the Matthews was definitely on the short list, but uh, ultimately it wasn't the bow I ended up going with. With the gearhead lineup that I shot, of course they have super short bows all the way down to 18, 20, 24 inches, whereas the APA and the Matthews are both 28. I tried several options that were shorter than those with the 24s and the 20s, and I also tried one of the 30 inch ones. And by doing that, I was able to kind of see, okay, typically with shorter axle to axle bows, you got a smaller string angle. It might be a little bit more goofy to anchor compared to what you'd be used to. So that allowed me to really see what was the kind of the smallest axle to axle I could get away with and still have a reasonably comfortable string angle that I felt like I could deal with. And for me, the 24 was kind of that sweet spot where I felt like if I went shorter than the 24, it was, it was a little bit, it was definitely going to take more getting used to. Let's uh, put it that way. Whereas with the 24, I felt like I could still get my anchor in an appropriate spot, be able to get my string on the nose and be able to make it work. The way that the riser is set up being wider than the, the grip and kind of that, you know, split riser with the, uh, shoot through design. I felt like that also really helped it kind of hold steady. So similar to the Matthews where it kind of felt like to the best of my knowledge, it was sitting very still on target. The gearhead felt the same way. It really felt steady as I was sitting there, even without a stabilizer. Felt like it balanced pretty well. But the thing that really kind of pushed the decision for me over the edge on the gearhead was when I started to talk about and uh, play around with the gearhead B series a little bit more. As you guys know, I obviously love to tinker with stuff, especially bow and arrow type things. And with the B series, bow from gearhead you can move the grip forward and back you can move the grip left and right within that riser 
You can also adjust the draw length with the cams. So between the grip and the uh, draw length adjustment on the cams, what you can actually do is you can find, you know, whatever your normal true draw length is. And for me, it's like AMO 29 and a half. And then you can shorten the brace height and increase the cam draw length. So you end up with a short brace height bow that has a 29 and a half inch effective draw length. Or you can move that grip forward, end up with like a six and a half inch brace height bow, adjust the draw length on the cams and end up with a more smooth, forgiving shooting bow at that same 29 and a half inch effective draw length. So you can play around with, you know, the speed on one side or the forgiveness on the other side of the spectrum and really fine tune it. The other thing was I don't have to shim cams anymore with that type of a system. Of course, it's like a one-time thing with any other bow regardless, but with that movable grip, as you come back to full draw, you can look down the string and see how it's coming off the cam. If it's angled to either the left or the right, you can adjust the grip to fix that as opposed to shimming the cams, which is a much more complicated setup or thing to do. So when you move that grip left and right, you fix that center shot issue with the cam or the string coming off the cams. And that takes care of like, just like the, the guy Aaron Tedford at the booth was saying, it takes care of 90% of your tuning right there. And if you do need any kind of minor fine adjustment after that, you can just push that rest ever so slightly left to the right. And I found that really was true for me. I ended up having the grip on mine that I ended up buying. I left it right dead center. I played around pushing it left and right, and it made a big difference in how that bow paper teared. I ended up looking at the cams and saying, okay, grip in the center works perfect for me. The strength coming right off the cams. And then that got me really close to almost a perfect bullet hole with a bare shaft through paper. And then I just touched the rest ever so slightly and that got it to just a clean bullet hole. So it was really easy for me to tune really quick. And then from there, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of playing with those different settings, playing with the brace height, playing with the, the draw length. And that's what I'm going to basically continue to do. It's faster than the bow I had shot last year. It's faster than my BX32. I'm still keeping my BX32. I like that bow a lot. Uh, but kind of the thought with the B series bow is that for sure it was going to be kind of my, you know, saddle hunting bow, ground hunting bow. Like the way that I hunt, it fits that style really well because it's so compact. It's going to take up less space on my backpack. It takes up less space as I'm holding it. So there's some advantages from that perspective. But my thought was short bow, smaller brace height might be less forgiving. Maybe it's not also the bow that I'm going to take out West on a trip like that, where I might have a longer shot, but that was kind of going to be something where I was going to, you know, test it and shoot it side by side with some of my other bows and ultimately leave it up to whichever one is the most accurate and the most forgiving that I would take on to some of those trips. And what I can say is that at the range so far, I've been really pleasantly surprised with how well that bow has been holding and shooting for me. I did put a sidebar on. I felt like I didn't need a front bar in terms of a stabilizer, but I put a sidebar on and that kind of counteracted the, um, the way that I hold the bow and the weight of the sight and the rest installed on the opposite side. It makes it so that when I come back to full draw and just relax everything, that bow will tip and just be perfectly vertical. And my bubble level is, is centered and I don't have to, you know, manipulate the bow one way or the other to get that level. And it, sits really well. And even at 70 yards, I mean, I was just stacking arrows in there as tight as I ever have. So only having owned this bow now for a f you know, a few days, I have been very happy with how forgiving, how easy it is to tune, how stable it sits on target, even at long range. I have to imagine it's only going to get better as I continue to play around with this bow, 
adjust the settings and, you know, see ultimately what I end up with in terms of, you know, draw length and brace height. The other thing that I have the ability to do with that bow that I haven't even played around with so far is there's three different posts to put, to be able to put the string on in the cams. And it has the same kind of effect as short string or a long string in the bow. So it makes the cam cycle more or less aggressive. And right now it's just kind of on that center post from the factory, which is kind of the normal. But if I find for whatever reason, I want to try a more aggressive cam cycle a little bit, you know, it's going to be harder to pull back, but it's going to put more energy into the arrow. And maybe let's say I'm shooting, I want to go out west or something. And I find that I can effectively pull that extra energy back and I'm still able to shoot it well enough, then I can fire, you know, a lot heavier arrow at a faster speed, you know, assuming that I can still shoot that accurately. I have that option. Whereas alternatively, if I want to back that bow down to say, you know, 60 pounds and put the brace height back long late season, white tails, I just want a nice, smooth, easy drawn bow that I can just draw back in super slow motion, ultra controlled and have that option too. I can. So it really is for me, with the exception of being able to do like anything in the field, like the, you could with the APA, I feel like it really suits my style very well. It gives me a lot of options. There's a lot of things to play around with. Probably a lot more options than the average guy would want. So I think that for the average guy, a disruptor or a T-series for hunting might be a little bit more typical of an option. I would also say that if I was more into 3D and target archery, I probably would have gotten a little bit longer axle to axle model of their bow. And I would have obviously opened up my overall bow search and, and shooting to a whole bunch of different other options than specifically just bows under 30 inches axle to axle. Uh, John Wheeler <clears throat> took second place in, at Lancaster with the B36 uh, just a short while ago. And if you feel like, here's kind of the way I think about it. If you feel like a bow at a short axle to axle is forgiving and you say, hey, this thing shoots like, you know, it's a 36 inch bow, even though it's a 30 inch bow or, you know, whatever the numbers are. Well, if that's the case, then a bow of the same design that is 36 inches it should shoot even better. And that's kind of how I feel like with that particular bow. I feel like the 24 for me so far has been shooting uh, very well. So I have to imagine that the 36 would be even more so. But of course, I don't get the advantages from a hunting perspective that that 24 I feel like gives me. So that's kind of why I settle on the 24. I'm definitely more of a, a bow hunter than a target archer. And a lot of the, you know, target shooting that I do is not competitive. It is just to make me a more effective bow hunter. So how do I have that thing set up right now? Uh, currently it is set at a five and three quarter brace height and it is 29 and a half inch true draw, which basically means if I measure from where the knock attaches to the string at full draw and measure to the throat of the grip, and I add one and three quarter inches to that, it ends up at 29 and a half. Because it's a shorter axle to axle bow, I can actually push it to 29 and three quarter, which is a quarter inch longer than I would typically shoot. I'll still have to do a little bit of playing around with that and just ultimately see what's the most forgiving and best shooting brace or overall draw length for me, whether or not it's one of those two settings. But with shorter axle to axle bows, I do know people that have been able to go slightly longer on the draw length with the shorter bow because of the string angle. Because it's, if you still are able to draw back and get your, your nose to that string, it's going to end up coming a little bit further back in your face. But you also have to play around with how does that affect where your draw arm elbow is in that forearm in relationship to the arrow. You don't want that thing to be off or it's going to cause you left and right misses. So I ended up also decreasing the length of my D loop. 
I used to run a little bit longer D loop and now I shorten that up quite a bit relative to what it used to be. And that combination seems to be working pretty well so far with this bow. And it feels like at full draw, I am aligned as well as I could be. And that I think is also contributing to why I'm able to shoot as well as I think I am right now, uh, only having this bow for a few days. The other thing that I'm doing because it is a shorter axle axle bow and the string angle is tighter is I, you know, of course tie my, uh, little bit of serving thread above and below the arrow knock in between the D loop. So I'm not tying my D loop right around the knock of the arrow. I have a little bit of separation there to help prevent that string pinch when I come back to full draw. Also on the arrows that I have rigged up with fobs, I have that modification that allows me to push that fob further up the arrow with veins. It's not an issue. One thing I may do, and I'm not hundred percent sure on this. I may try adding some kind of a, a nose button, whether it's, you know, the, the Bomar one or whether it's, I just, you know, put on a little bit of serving thread. So that may just be one additional thing that I can do to help kind of improve the consistency. It seems like so far, if I touch the tip of my string to the nose, the, this tip of my nose to the string and I align the peep housing with the sight housing, I'm getting pretty consistent results. So we'll see if that's even necessary. The other thing that's interesting is that that bow did not come with speed knocks. And obviously a lot of bows do come with speed knocks on the string. And oftentimes if you have speed knocks on a string, it'll give you a few feet per second more than if you didn't have them on, which seems counterintuitive because you're adding weight to the string, but it's more about the location of where that weight is added. That gives you a little bit of extra boost. So that may be something I play around with. It might not seem like much of a advantage or gain to try and go through that much effort for a few feet per second. But the way I look at it is you're not adding more energy in to the system. You're just getting more of that initial energy back out. So if I can get more of that into the arrow, I might as well, you know, try to do it. I might reach out to gearhead too, and see if they have played around with that at all in some of their systems and see if they have any recommendations or if they come back and say, yeah, we tried that and it really didn't make any difference. It might save me a little bit of time. One thing that I'm definitely not gaining with this new bow system is an ultra light bow. One of the main advantages of some of the bows that they make, like the T18, the T20, some of those ones that are a carbon riser and that the really short axle to axle ones is they are crazy lightweight, like three pounds for a bare bow. I think the 18 might even be less than three pounds for a bare bow, which is really light. The bow that I have is 4.25 bare bow. And once I added on my rest, I added on my sight, I added on that sidebar, it's just a hair over six pounds. So as really close to what my BX 32 was all rigged up. So it's not ultra light, but it sits really well on target. I feel like it's very stable for me. So that's one of those things where I'm just going to shoot what shoots the most accurate for me. And if that means I'm carrying a couple extra pounds, it's not that big of a deal. It's one of those things where sure. Would it be nice to carry a lightweight bow? Yeah, that'd be nice. But I'm also gaining from the fact that it's just more compact. That's kind of the bigger advantage to me, at least anyway. So if I can get a, a bow that's more compact, but still sits very stable, it's very forgiving for me. And it ends up weighing just as much as the bow that I've always otherwise carried. Then to me, that's still a win. They did offer the bow in different options for dips in terms of camouflage. And I do like camo on my bows. I don't feel like it's necessary by any means, but I definitely don't feel like it hurts. And I personally like the way that it looks. But I decided to get this bow in just the standard black anodize. 
And the reason I did that was because it saved like, I think a hundred dollars off the additional cost and like the four or five extra weeks to get the bow dipped. But also I wanted to try something else, which is to basically wrap the bow riser with paracord, gutted paracord. So it's lighter weight. So I tried that and so far I'm liking it. We'll see how well things hold up. But the advantage of doing that is it adds only like two ounces. It makes the bow very quiet, just like wrapping a tree stand edge or a saddle platform stand with uh, paracord wood. So I feel like I'm de-risking myself in the noise department. And it also makes it so that it's warmer to the touch. So I'm not having to hold on to that cold aluminum directly in cold weather when I'm carrying the bow. And then obviously it's adding camouflage. So the way that I'm wrapping that is in certain segments, I'm using like a darker camo paracord that's gutted, which means that all the fibers in the inside are pulled out. And then the other one is a lighter pattern. So if you look at it from far away, it's kind of a mixture of lights and darks, more spaced out, kind of like an open pattern. And then if you look at it close, it's still, you know, camouflage paracord. So you got a little bit of the macro micro mixture and the fact that it's of course set up in a, a riser that already has a bunch of see-through holes anyway, it, you know, adds definitely, I feel like a little bit of breakup to that otherwise standard black riser. So in summary, I'm pretty excited. I was not at all sure if I wanted to spend additional money, especially knowing that the bow that I was shooting last year could easily serve me for another decade at least, you know, just replace the strings and cables every now and then. But I let my thought process and my mind kind of stew on the options after ATA for a couple of weeks and my mind kept jumping back to that gearhead. So I ended up, ended up just biting the bullet and now I have it and I like it and I am happy with the purchase. So I'm going to bring it down to Saddlepalooza in a couple of weeks, hopefully get out and do some hog hunting, maybe even shoot something. But right now the plan is that it's going to be, you know, my primary hunting bow for this fall. I should mention too, that I obviously still have the traditional bows and I will continue to shoot those as well. And we'll probably hunt with those as well. Most likely at this point, I'm thinking that I will use those in Wisconsin where I have the most amount of available tags and the most amount of time to use them. Whereas in Minnesota, my home state, a lot of the tags that I do have or the places that I hunt are in areas where they're one tag only. So those type of areas, I tend to try to be a little bit more picky, which means, you know, trying to be picky and also trying to use a traditional bow. You know, I, as I experienced last year, they just don't always go super well together. So I feel like the compound is going to be my bow of choice in places where I have a really short amount of time to fill a tag or a match or something more specific. Whereas I'll be able to use the traditional bow and hunt in places and situations that offer a little bit more target rich type of environment. So that's just kind of the plan and my thought process. If you guys have any questions, feel free to shoot them over and let me know what you guys thought about kind of that little Q and a at the beginning of the podcast. I can start doing that more often. If you feel like there's some value added in that, uh, or if you just want to, you know, maybe like I did before, just have one podcast that's totally dedicated to Q&A instead of trying to spread the questions out at the beginning of other podcasts. So that'll do it for the episode. As always, be sure to follow Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman on YouTube. Instagram is DIY underscore Sportsman. Facebook, just DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.